Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Welcome once again to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Uh, my name is Peter Hine, Project Manager at the Indian Ocean World Centre, McGill University. And my name is Philip Gooding, a postdoctoral fellow at the Indian Ocean World Centre. This is the third of three introductory podcasts on the Indian Ocean World and its history. The first detailed what we mean by the Indian Ocean world, and the second explained what we mean by human-environment interaction. This third podcast discusses some of the key texts and works that have dealt with these terms. We are once again joined by Professor Gwyn Campbell, the director of the Indian Ocean World Centre at McGill University, and the principal investigator for the partnership project Appraising Risk Past and Present, interrogating historical data to enhance understanding of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean world, which is funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. Gwyn, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. All right, let's start, uh, let's start general. Uh, Gwyn, what were some of the works that helped shape your early career as a historian? As a historian? Well, that takes me right back to the sixth form at high school, when Dewey, our North Walian history teacher, would march into the classroom academic gowns swirling and literally throw some of his books at us. Titles such as England Under the Tudors by G.R. Elton, The Age of Catherine de' Medici by J.E. Neal, and The Thirty Years' War by C.V. Wedgwood. We would take them home and devour their contents uncritically as if they were sacred texts. We treated such authors as academic gods, However, in retrospect, I realised they are quintessentially Eurocentric in approach. Reflect conventional preoccupations with the history of big men, of the making of European nation-states, and of the conflicts that ensued from the expansion of such entities. As influential, however, were some of the literary texts we studied at high school. A highlight was being introduced to George Orwell, then independently reading Homage to Catalonia and subsequently his collected essays. These provided a much more personal take on historical action, written from the perspective of someone who became ideologically committed to certain causes and then disillusioned with those ideologies, someone who participated in some of the greatest events of the 20th century, such as the workings of the British Empire in Burma, and the Spanish Civil War, and who, as a result, went on to write one of the most prescient works of, of the modern age, a work that resonates hugely today, and I'm referring to Orwell's masterpiece, 1984. At university, some of the historians I read who had the greatest impact were radical social historians, such as Eric Hobsbawm and E.P. Thompson who have helped put historical agency into ordinary working class men and women. And economic historians such as Peter Kane and Tony Hopkins, whose courses I followed, and whose teaching and publications have opened up new interpretations of British imperial history and the non-European world. Thus Tony Hopkins, in his classic economic history of West Africa, gave long overdue agency to Africans while Kane and Hopkins' work on imperialism has challenged conventional Eurocentric interpretations focused on, em on empire as a result of political developments in Europe, and rather 
they investigate the complex interaction of European and extra-European forces. I suppose that what changed fundamentally at university was that there I was taught to think critically, to judge authors in context, which led in my MA and especially my PhD programme to evaluate what authors wrote against the products of my own research. That was truly exciting, for it's a process by which young historians begin to shape new historical perspectives, to begin to find their own feet, to come of age as historians, and slowly gain the notice and respect of peers. I know elsewhere that you've cited Fernand Braudel as a major influence. Um, how has Braudel in particular um, shaped your understanding of history and also your concept of the Indian Ocean world? Well, Fernand Braudel and the French Annales school he inspired fundamentally challenge conventional approaches to history that, as we discussed in previous podcasts, place humans at the centre of the historical story, or more precisely, the European male. Conventional historical approaches thus focus on the history of big men, Julius Caesar, Napoleon, Winston Churchill, on the rise of European nation-states, European expansion overseas, on wars involving primarily Europeans. In such histories, humans alone, notably European males, are the catalyst of historical change. What Braudel did was to bring the environment into the equation. He stated that the material, everyday life of humans is fundamentally affected by their environmental surroundings, by the geography of where they live and by its climate. And those humans who share a common environment and thus material existence, tend also to develop similar cultures and a similar history, irrespective of political frontiers that might be erected in an attempt to divide them. Braudel focused on the Mediterranean and made what I consider to be an irrefutable case that those lands bordering the Mediterranean Sea, its literal, have always had much more in common because of their geography and climate than with lands with different geographical and climatic characteristics. Thus, to take a graphic example, the peoples of southern France, close to the Mediterranean, have always had a material existence, and it must be remembered that throughout most of history about 90% of humans have depended on agriculture for their existence, a material existence much more similar to that of other Mediterranean peoples than to the people of northern France, who themselves have much more in common with other peoples of northern Europe. Which brings us to the ineluctable conclusion that the catalyst of historical change is not humans alone, but rather the complex forces at work in human-environment interaction. That's a good bridge to the concept of Indian Ocean world history. So Gwen, what do you consider the foundational works of Indian Ocean world history and what makes them foundational? Well, K.N. Chowdhury, in two path-breaking volumes, Trade and Civilization in the Indian Ocean, published in 1985, and Asia Before Europe, 1992, adapted Fernand Braudel's concept of a Mediterranean maritime economy 
to the Indian Ocean, thereby building a, the base for the concept of an Asia-Indian Ocean global economy, extending from the Middle East to China, that arose centuries before the advent of Europeans into the Indian Ocean. Chowdhury's work has inspired other works, such as Anthony Reid's Southeast Asia in the Age of Commerce, um, published in two volumes in 1988 and 1993, and Janet Abulugard before European hegemony in 1989. And you can add to that Andre, Andre Vink, Al-Hind, Al The Making of Indo-Islamic World, two volumes published in 1996 and 1997, and Andre Gunter Frank, Reorient, The Global Economy in the Asian Age, 1998. These works are very important in focusing on the role of the Indian and associated maritime spaces in creating the context for the rise and development of a regular, sophisticated and durable system of long-distance exchange, an exchange of commodities, peoples, ideas and technologies across the entire region between the Red Sea and China. In this they challenged conventional his histories, histories based on big men, the making of nation-states, of empires, or that of a tight regional studies focus, one that concentrates on one particular region as defined in the period of European colonization, such as Southeast Asia or the Middle East. However, one must add that they have significant weaknesses for they, they, in general, retained Eurocentric temporal paradigms, highlighting, for example, the early modern as a period of striking singularity and relevance. And they place Africa very much on the periphery of their vision. And they also underestimate the full panoply, vibrancy, and constantly changing nature of environmental forces. Okay then, so for somebody who is new to Indian Ocean world history or Indian Ocean world studies more generally, which books or articles would you consider essential reading? As essential reading, well, the volumes I've already, already referred to, those by Chowdhury, Reed, Abu Lugard and Gunda Frank. They're critical in terms of understanding the historiographical context for Indian Ocean world studies. I would also emphasize the significance of the works of Michael Pearson, notably his volume entitled The Indian Ocean, published in 2003, and Abdul Sharif's Dow Cultures and the Indian Ocean, published in 2010. All of these are vital to a general understanding of Indian Ocean world history. There's also, however, a growing interest in specific topics in Indian Ocean world history. To give you one example, the issue of bondage in the Indian Ocean world, a major interest of mine. There exist a number of texts on this, some of the most significant being James Watson's Asian and African Systems of Slavery, published early, published in 1980. Anthony Reid, Slavery, Bondage and Dependency in Southeast Asia, published in 1983. Martin Klein, Breaking the Chains, published in 1993, and a volume I edited entitled The Structure of Slavery in Indian Ocean, Africa and Asia, published in 2004. 
What is truly exciting about exploring specific topics such as bondage within the Brodellian concepts that form the framework for Indian Ocean World Studies is that there emerges a different perspective, a different interpretation of the historical narrative. Thus, it has become increasingly clear that the conventional view of slavery based on the Atlantic model is inappropriate in an Indian Ocean world context. To explain, in the conventional Atlantic model of slavery, the slave is a black African male, ripped violently from his homeland in Africa, forced to undergo a tortuous voyage, the Middle Passage, across the Atlantic, and should he survive, then be forced to work on a cash crop plantation or in a mine in the New World and live in squalid conditions with thousands of other slaves of African origin, deprived of basic civil rights. He's a chattel that his owner can punish or sell at will and who can never accumulate inheritable property of his own. He lives and dies a slave and his slave status is inherited by any children he might have. By contrast, slaves in the Indian Ocean world were of all colours and origins. In total, black Africans formed a minority of slaves, except in certain regions of the Western Indian Ocean world, and even there only during certain time periods. More women and children were traded as slaves than men, and they did all types of work, and in some cases no work at all, being valued as objects of conspicuous consumption that reflected the wealth and power of their owners. Moreover, most enjoyed at least some rights. Some could change owners, marry legitimately, and most importantly, a significant number could obtain manumission, either through the wish of their owner, in some cases through legal entitlement, as was the case in Muslim societies governed by the Sharia. In such societies, for example, when a female slave gave birth to the child of their master and the master died before her, she automatically gained freedom. Or they could gain manumission through their own action, through, for example, saving up enough to redeem themselves, to pay off their own market value. But bondage is just one of a myriad of exciting topics that are just beginning to be explored in Indian Ocean World Studies. So on that, um, what are some of your other favorite recent works in the field of Indian Ocean World Studies? Well, because I worked so intimately on them, I'd have to say the essays found in recent works that, that I've edited, um, in, for example, the volume Bondage and the Environment in the Indian Ocean World, published in 2018, and Early Exchange Between Africa and the Wider Indian Ocean World, published in 2016. Also, the essays in the Journal of Indian Ocean World Studies, a new multidisciplinary journal based at McGill that's dedicated to the Indian Ocean World as a macro region running from East Africa to China, covering both maritime and terrestrial spheres and all time periods. And I'd add to that the volumes appearing in the exciting new Palgrave series in Indian Ocean World Studies. These comprise both monographs and collections of essays on all aspects of Indian Ocean world history, 
Just to give you an idea of their range, some volumes shortly to appear in this series will be Currencies of the Indian Ocean World, edited by Stephen Sorrells and myself, which offers groundbreaking insights into the history of the complex multi-currency system of the Indian Ocean world. And a collection of essays in a volume entitled Creatures of Commerce in the Indian Ocean World, co-edited with Martha Chaitlin and Philip Gooding, who's here today in the podcast as one of my interlocutors. This volume is highly innovative in shedding light on human treatment of, and dependence on, animals as an integral part of the Indian Ocean world system of production and trade. Your forthcoming book is a history of Africa and the Indian Ocean world. Can you tell us about the genesis of that book and what do you hope that it will add to the conversation? Aha, uh-huh. you are now asking for confessions. For this book has been many, many years in the making. I'm ashamed to admit that I signed a contract with Cambridge University Press to write this volume in 2004 and that it is only just gone to press. Martin Klein of the University of Toronto recruited me to write this for a new series of which he was general editor entitled New Approaches to African History. This series is a series of short books orientated specifically to the needs of undergraduates and is designed as an introduction to African history. However, for me, this volume has proved difficult to write for a number of reasons. First and foremost, I wished to write a work that reflected new advances into Indian Ocean world history, one that interpreted that history in the light of human environment interaction. As the overwhelming bulk of literature The overwhelming bulk of literature related to the Indian Ocean world was based on conventional Eurocentric interpretations, interpretations that put the European front and centre of the picture and followed Eurocentric themes such as the history of big men, Vasco da Gama, Clive of India, Cecil Rhodes, and of the making of European empires and then the creation of nation states as also of area studies founded on regions as defined by European colonial officials, Southeast Asia, South Asia, the Middle East, East Africa. All this made a study of cross-national, cross-regional interconnections over long time periods, difficult and time-consuming. Secondly, those pioneering works that apply Bordelian perspectives to the Indian Ocean world by Chowdhury, Pearson and others, for all that they were groundbreaking, tended to treat the monsoons as a constant, a system that could be relied on unerringly through the ages. However, the monsoon system is constantly in flux, is never the same year in, year out. So that, for example, the southwest monsoon rains, the torrential ones, the ones essential to the agricultural system of Littoral Asia, sometimes arrive early, sometimes late, sometimes not at all. It sometimes brings rains that are so torrential that they ruin the crop, or such little rain that drought ensues and the harvest fails. Not only does the bulk of existing historical literature underestimate the variability of the monsoons, it often fails adequately to take into account 
other environmental factors that often intersect with and influence the monsoons. Factors such as ENSO, the El Nino Southern Oscillation events, the Indian Ocean Dipole, and the ITCZ, the Intertropical Convergence Zone. And also often quite distinct events such as earthquakes, tsunamis, and sulfur-rich volcanic eruptions. This meant that I had to engage in considerable research into these environmental factors and their impact on the Indian Ocean world over the long durée. In this, I was helped enormously by a Canadian government fund that created a multidisciplinary international team of scholars to investigate the development of an Indian Ocean world global economy within the context of human-environment interaction. The findings of this research project fed into a data bank to which Bayesian Networks analysis was applied helped to reveal new temporal contours for the Indian Ocean world, ones that in part diverge significantly from conventional Eurocentric periodization. In overall terms, it is now clear that in the light of the forces of human-environment interaction, the Indian Ocean world global economy experienced three major phases of expansion from about 300 BCE to 300 CE, from the 9th to 13th centuries, and again from about the mid-19th century. And in the intervening periods, it experienced economic stagnation from about 300 to 800 CE and between roughly 1300 and 1850. Now this is interesting for while it tends to confirm the Eurocentric focus on the Middle Ages as a climatically warm era of general prosperity, it challenges conventional historical writings which comprise the bulk of historical work on the Indian Ocean world that stress the early modern as an era in which Europeans established military, economic and political superiority in the Indian Ocean world. Finally, most histories, both of the old conventional nature and the newer ones that stress the importance of the monsoons, fail adequately to incorporate Africa into their analysis. They are either unashamedly Asia-centred and relegate Africa to the periphery of their studies, or they analyse Africa's role in the Indian Ocean world as essentially subordinate, specifically as a supply centre of slaves and ivory that was exploited for profit by foreigners. My book attempts to reinterpret the role of Africa in the making of Indian Ocean world history and attempts to do so in the light of the new temporal and spatial paradigms that emerge from our study of the constantly changing forces of human-environment interaction within the macro region. What emerges, I hope, is a much more nuanced and positive picture, wherein Africans play a vital entrepreneurial role, not only in the history of Indian Ocean Africa, but also in the making of the Indian Ocean world. So we're almost out of time, but I'll end with one final question. Uh, when it comes to Indian Ocean world history, what are the topics you feel remain understudied? Or what deserves reconsideration in the light of new scholarship? 
Uh, maybe I'll phrase it another way. If you could wish for one book, uh, what would it be? Oh, what a big question. There's so many topics currently little studied that deserve attention. However, for me, probably the most important, but also the most challenging, is to take our initial research project to its logical conclusion and to produce a history of the rise and development of the Indian Ocean world global economy in the light of human environment interaction. A volume that takes full account of the new thematic, spatial and temporal paradigms and will thus set a new baseline and standard for emerging scholars and researchers to pursue and which will hopefully help illuminate the history of the Indian Ocean world for the individuals and communities who inhabit that vast region. Thanks, Gwyn. That's about all the time we have for today. And this wraps up our series of three introductory podcasts on the Indian Ocean world. Please stay tuned for subsequent podcasts in which we will explore specific recent, ongoing, and future research conducted by ourselves and our colleagues that relate to human-environment interaction in the Indian Ocean world, past and present. Once again, I'm Peter Hind, Project Manager of McGill University's Indian Ocean World Centre. And I'm Philip Gooding, a postdoctoral fellow at the Indian Ocean World Centre. Thank you again to Professor Gwyn Campbell, the director of the Indian Ocean World Centre, for his answers to our questions on the Indian Ocean world today. Until next time. The Indian Ocean World podcast would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This podcast series is part of the SSHRC-funded partnership project Appraising Risk Past and Present, interrogating historical data to enhance understanding of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean world.